Thanks for tuning in. I'm Shelby. And I'm also Shelby. No, you're not. You're Renee. Whoops. (laughs) And you're listening to... Renee. (laughs) (laughs) The Creepy Burrito. Welcome back, Burrito family. I just want to shout out today's episode to our killer giveaway back when we covered Richard Ramirez. The winner, Sabrina, had requested that we cover a big, juicy, lost-in-the-sauce burrito, the case of Lacey Peterson. One of the most notorious murder cases in recent history that took the media by storm and is still speculated if the real killer is behind bars. To this day, Scott Peterson denies any involvement in his wife's disappearance. I personally was excited to cover this case because I grew up with three channels, so shout out to those kids that grew up with the news on TV all the time, and the only times you got to watch cartoons was Saturday mornings. So growing up, you watched a lot of like those media frenzy true crime cases, like the Lacey Peterson case, or Casey Anthony was also another big one I remember from growing up. So I'm going to take you through the case, a little bit of their background, his day of events and what had happened, the trial, and everything that had ensued from there. So buckle up. It's going to be a bumpy ride. It's going to be a big burrito. Yeah, feel very full. Very full. It's going to be messy. But also you're going to feel empty. (laughs) Two-hander. Two-hander. Grab the mid and the bottom. (laughs) Find a friend to support you. Yeah, find a friend. You're going to need it. But the beginning starts off pretty normal. Scott and Lacey Peterson, they both came from fairly normal backgrounds. Scott grew up and was a avid golfer, and Lacey was a cheerleader. Both had what seemed to be happy families, normal childhoods, no red flags there. So Scott and Lacey, they had met while they were in college in mid-1994 when they were attending California Polytech. Scott worked at a restaurant in Murrow Bay called Pacific Cafe. And Lacey would stop in at the restaurant to meet with one of her friends that had worked there. And Lacey made the first move by sending him her number. And when she went home, she immediately told her mom that she met the man that she was going to marry. Later, Scott called her up, took her on their first date, which was, ironically enough, a deep sea fishing trip (laughs) where Lacey got seasick. After Lacey graduated, they got married on August 9th of 1997. Scott gave up on his dreams of becoming a pro golfer and graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in Agricultural Business in June of 1998. After college, they opened up their own sports bar called The Shack. The business was initially slow, but improved over time on the weekends. And they ended up selling the bar in 2000 because they wanted to move back to Lacey's hometown in Modesto, California to start a family. Once they moved to Modesto, Lacey worked part-time as a substitute teacher and Scott got a job for this fertilizer company. Their friends and family had described them as a happy couple and they were perfect together. They seemed blissful and happy all the time. So naturally, everyone was ecstatic when Lacey told them that she was pregnant 
They were expecting their baby son, Connor, to arrive February 16th of 2003 and had even started decorating the baby's room in a nautical theme. So no one could have predicted how quickly it would all come to an end. So we are going to retrace the footsteps starting on December 23rd of 2002. In the evening from 5.45 to 8.30 p.m., Scott said that he and Lacey went to the salon where Lacey's sister, Amy Racha, had worked so that she could give Scott a haircut. Amy confirmed seeing Scott and Lacey at the shop because she showed her how to do this cute little, like, hair flip with her hair and recalled Lacey wearing tan pants and a black blouse with small flowers all over it. Amy testified that Scott invited her over for pizza that night, but she had already had plans, so she didn't go over to their house. Amy said that Scott mentioned plans to golf in the morning and offered to pick up a Christmas present at a store called Vela Farms. Scott said that they had left the salon and picked up Mountain Mike's Pizza on their way home. Once they got home, they ate the pizza and watched Monday Night Football. At around 8.30 p.m., Lacey spoke with her mother, Sharon Racha, on the phone to confirm their Christmas Eve dinner plans at Sharon's house the next day. From 8.30 to 10.30 p.m., Scott said after Sharon's phone call, they continued watching football and then watched the movie The Rookie. Scott estimated that they went to bed around 10.30 and that Lacey wore blue pajama pants to bed. The next morning, on December 24th, Scott estimated that Lacey woke up around 7 a.m. She got dressed and ate breakfast as soon as she got up to avoid from feeling sick, like morning sickness from being pregnant. At 8.40 in the morning, Lacey logged into her computer in a spare bedroom while Scott was in the shower. There was records of her going to shopping sites where she was looking at a red scarf and like sunflower umbrellas, stuff that people speculate that Scott Peterson wouldn't be looking up on his own. And then she had logged off at 8.45, so she was only on there for a couple minutes on a couple shopping sites and then logged off. This insinuates that Lacey was still alive at 8.45 a.m., so just trying to give you some time stamps throughout this morning. After he got out of the shower, Scott got dressed. Lacey told him about her plans for the day, that she was going to go walk the dog, go to the store, make gingerbread, and that she needed to buy bread for the French toast that they were going to serve at their Christmas brunch. Normal holiday pre-planning type of stuff. There was a recorded phone call between Scott and Lacey's mom that morning, and he said that Lacey looked so cute because she was sitting on her bench in front of the mirror styling her hair the way that Amy had shown her. There was a photo that had supported this that was submitted as evidence by the police department from when they searched the home later that evening. With the curling iron on the bathroom counter with the cord extended toward the outlet near the toilet in the bathroom. The housekeeper, Margarita Nava, who was there the day before, testified that nothing was left out on the bathroom counter whenever she was there, and that no bench was in the bathroom when she had left. This is evidence that Lacey was still alive and that she was curling her hair before he had supposedly left that morning. Scott said that he had loaded three patio umbrellas from the backyard into the bed of his truck and that he was going to go store them in the warehouse. His neighbor Kristen had walked by while Scott was loading the umbrellas into his truck. She saw him, exchanged their good morning hellos, and then went about their business. Scott then went back to the house, filled the mop bucket for Lacey so that she could mop the floor. And then this is all happening between when he got out of the shower at 8.46 in the morning till approximately 9.47 a.m. 
At 9.48, Scott told Detective Braccini, who is the lead investigator on the case, that he and Lacey were first watching the Today Show, and then they had switched over to Martha Stewart. He remembered seeing something on TV about lemon meringue and cookies, which did end up making it into the prosecution's opening statement. They were trying to disprove the fact that Martha Stewart was even on TV at that time, but there was actual records that Martha Stewart was on TV talking about meringue and cookies that morning, so bad fact-checking there. And then also, it did bring into the question, why would he know that this was on? Like, Martha Stewart, why would he have it on if she was already dead at this time? Mm -hmm. Or if something had already happened to her, why would he just be sitting there watching Martha Stewart? Scott then said that he left out the side French doors for work while Lacey was mopping. He did give various times, like estimating when he had left the house between 9.30 a.m. and 10.30, so that he could make his nine-minute drive to the warehouse, where he then checked his voicemail on his cell phone at 10.08 a.m. When he got to the office, he parked and entered through the side pedestrian door. At around 10.30 to 10.56 a.m., Scott told the police that he had checked his email and sent an email back to his boss, who had left him an earlier voicemail. Computer forensics showed that Scott continuously logged into his work computer for 26 minutes between 10.30 and 10.56 a.m., so that checks out. He checked the email, sent one, looked up instructions on how to assemble a woodworking tool that he had ordered a couple days before. There's approximately 20 minutes from when Scott logged off the computer to when he actually left the warehouse. During this time, he said that he had cleaned up his office a bit and then starting to assemble the woodworking tool that he had got. He opened the roll-up door to the warehouse and unloaded some of the tools from the toolbox in the back of his truck. While he was doing that, he had cut his knuckle on the toolbox and then opened the driver's side door of his truck to get a napkin to try to stop the bleeding. There was evidence that did support this. There was blood found on the side of his door, and it was tested, did come back to be his blood. Scott said that he had felt it was too cold out to go golfing, so he decided to head to the marina instead to try out his new fishing boat. He backed up his truck, hooked up the boat, and pulled out of the warehouse. Scott said that he had left the warehouse about 11.18 to drive to the marina, He thought it took him about an hour and a half to get there, maybe a little bit longer because he was pulling the trailer. Supporting Scott's statement, if you look it up, the GPS coordinates from the warehouse to the marina is about an hour and 36 minute drive. Scott was able to provide the police with the boat launch ticket that he purchased uh, that had the timestamp of 1254 when he arrived at the marina. Once Scott got into the water, he told the police that he motored north for about two miles that he was near this little island that had a bunch of trash on it. He saw a big sign that said no landing and that there were some broken piers. He assumed it would be a decent shallow area to start fishing. He trailed in the area for a bit and headed back to the marina because he was starting to get wet. Fitting Scott's description, the island described turned out to be Brooks Island. Evidence photos show trash and the piers and the sign that says no landing on it. Prosecution witnesses also confirmed that the area was shallow waters. When Scott arrived back to the marina, he said that he talked to a couple of guys about fishing that were out there that day, and a couple maintenance guys got a good laugh from him trying to back his truck up to to load up the boat. 
since this is the first time he's actually taking it out on the water. Scott estimated being at the bay for about 90 minutes from the time that Scott bought the ticket to when his cell phone records show him leaving the area is about 78 minutes. So it kind of falls into suit. Scott said when he had left the marina, he had called Lacey at home on her cell phone. He said he also called his other friend, Greg Reed, and his parents on the way home, stating that he had got stuck in some traffic. Scott's message was still on Lacey's voicemail, stating, Hey beautiful, I just left you a message at home. It's 2.15, I'm leaving Berkeley. I won't be able to get to Bella Farms to get the basket for Papa. I was hoping you would get this message and go out there. I'll see you in a bit, sweetie. Love you. Bye. Scott's cell phone records confirm all of the calls that he had made to his friend and his parents on his way home. On his way home, Scott said that he had pulled over to a gas station at a Chevron in Livermore and then called Lacey again. Bank records show that he was at the Chevron in Livermore at 2.35 p.m. is the timestamp from the receipt. Scott makes another call to Lacey's cell phone at 3.52 p.m but does not leave a message this time. It's a 48 minute drive from that Chevron to the warehouse, which would put him back at the warehouse at around 4.13 p.m. He said that he unhooked the boat and estimated spending no more than five minutes in the office before heading home. Scott estimated that he arrived home between 4.30 and 4.45. He entered through the side gate where he finds his dog Mackenzie with the leash still on, which is a little bit sketchy. Scott removes the leash and puts it on the patio table. It was discovered later that night that the next door neighbor, Karen Servas, had found Mackenzie in the street with the leash still on and put him back in Scott and Lacey's backyard. Scott said that he entered the home and the dog and cats ran into the house. He then emptied out the mop bucket because it looked like one of the cats might have been drinking it like while they were gone that Lacey had left it out. Lacey's car was still in the driveway whenever he got home, but Lacey wasn't home. He had assumed that Lacey's mom, Sharon, had come to pick Lacey up to help prepare for Christmas Eve dinner. Scott said that his clothes were a bit wet, so he undressed and then put them in the washer. He first removed the dirty cleaning rags from the washer that the housekeeper had left in there the day before. Scott said that he had eaten some of the leftover pizza they had from the night before, grabbed some milk, got showered and cleaned up, and then after had went back into the kitchen and listened to the phone messages. He listened to the message that he had left Lacey when he was leaving the marina and then listened to a message that was left by Ron Gransky, who was Lacey's stepfather. Ron asked Scott if Lacey would bring whipped cream when they come over for Christmas Eve dinner. This prompted Scott to call Ron and Sharon's home, since he assumed Lacey was already there. This call was about 5.17 p.m. Scott asked if Lacey was over at their house, but she wasn't. Scott told Sharon that Lacey's car was still in the driveway and that she wasn't even home. Sharon asked if Mackenzie was in the yard, and that is when Scott remembered that the leash was on the dog whenever he got home. At this point, this is where the search for Lacey had started. Over the next hour, Scott exchanged two more calls with Lacey's mom and Ron. Scott began knocking on the neighbor's doors, calling friends and family, trying to find where Lacey was. Sharon told Scott that they would begin calling hospitals since she was eight months pregnant at the time that she had disappeared to see if maybe something had happened or she had gone into an early labor. 
until they reached the point where Ron had called 911 at 5.47 p.m. to report Lacey was missing. After only a week since Lacey's disappearance, at least a dozen neighborhood witnesses had reported seeing her walking the morning of December 24th. According to these witnesses, police had only followed up by phone call. There was no in-person meetings or specific details taken down where exactly they had seen Lacey last or what she was wearing. And not all the witnesses even received call back from the police department. On December 29th, the Modesto Police Department had a press release stating, unfortunately, we have no concrete leads on those tips at this point. And on December 31st and January 2nd, due to the holiday, they had made the statement twice. The detectives had attested, although witnesses are located in the park area who claim to have seen a pregnant woman walking a dog, no positive identifications of Lacey have been established since Scott last saw her at the home. In the area within a one-mile radius of Lacey's house, there were 24 reported sightings. Within a three-mile radius, there were an additional seven, making a total of 31 people that stated they had saw Lacey walking the dog that morning. What possible excuse could the police department have for not investigating these sightings to determine exactly what was seen by each of these witnesses? Their lack of follow-up resulted in lost opportunities to establish credibility, and that should have honestly been collected and brought to court. So at that point, if that witness was uncredible, that should have still been brought to court for them to decide. Also, I feel like 30 is a little uncanny. Mm -hmm. You know, like maybe five or six. Okay, how can we be certain? Mm -hmm. 30? People claim to see a pregnant woman walking a dog. Like, okay, maybe. Oh, yeah, I saw a woman walking a dog. Okay. A pregnant woman walking walking a dog dog that fits the same outfit description because most of them had described her the way that Scott had last seen her wearing Mm -hmm. black leggings and a white blouse. Right. And then also, when we get into the trial... We'll we'll skip ahead a little bit. I'll give you a little taste. But they called multiple women to the stand that walk dogs in their area. So instead of calling up witnesses, which would, what I think is a logical thought, they Mm -hmm. called all of these random women that lived in the area that had commonly walked their dogs. And had no other involvement in the case whatsoever. That is correct. (sighs) Okay. Yep. So that is uh, what we are getting into, guys. But following her disappearance, the detectives did immediately launch a search, but were surprised by Scott Peterson's behavior. One of the lead investigators had told ABC News, I suspected Scott when I first met him. Didn't mean that he did it, but I was a little bit thrown off by his calm, cool demeanor and his lack of questioning. He wasn't, will you call me back? Can I have one of your cards? What are you guys doing now? Like, wanting to know what's happening with the case and that they're on it. Like, he didn't have that desperation to find Lacey. The Modesto police and the firefighters in the area carried out a massive search along the Dry Creek the day after Lacey's disappearance. The search did include helicopters equipped with searchlights. They brought in canine units and water rescue units on rafts. A total of 30 officers were employed in the search, as well as Lacey's loved ones and volunteers who posted flyers to raise awareness of her disappearance trying to find her. 
At a press conference, Detective Albrucini said that the police did not believe that Lacey decided to leave without contacting her family, commenting that that would just be completely out of character for her. Like, you're eight months pregnant, you're happy with your life, you're trying to start a family. It's literally Christmas Eve. It's Christmas Eve. You're not just going to up and leave, especially if you already had plans to meet with your family and cooking these meals. In the first two days, up to 900 people were involved in looking for Lacey before community officials and police directly participated in the search. A 25000 reward was offered and was later increased to $250,000 and finally to $500,000 for any information leading to Lacey's safe return. Posters, blue and yellow ribbons, flyers, and also a website, LaceyPeterson.com, was launched by like the family and friends that were participating in her search. And they had set up a command center at the nearby Red Lion Hotel to record developments and circulate information. Over 1,500 volunteers signed up to distribute information and help look for her. And soon, this circulated into nationwide news. Two weeks into her search, the media was already painting the picture of Scott being the primary suspect for the case. The Modesto police didn't immediately reveal him as a primary suspect due to Lacey's family and friends believed that he was innocent and that he had nothing to do with her disappearance. And once the media got involved, it kind of just turned into a wildfire. Like, false news, true news, leaking information. At one point, they were circulating news of some girl that went to the college that Scott Peterson attended that she had disappeared, implying that he could have been involved and then checking into his class schedules to see if they ever crossed paths. Like, it just went in, like, every direction. Mm -hmm. It was insane. And then there was another post um, saying that their house smelled like bleach or cleaning products. Like, it it got a little bit out of hand very quickly. Also, she, you said that the housekeeper was there the day before, so The housekeeper was there the the day before. The housekeeper was cleaning. Lacey was mopping that day, probably because, like, whenever your family's coming over for Christmas, like, you're gonna scrub everywhere, you're gonna mop everything, you're You're gonna gonna make sure- You're gonna get fucking crazy. You're gonna get crazy, you're gonna be scrubbing walls, you're gonna clean crevices that haven't been cleaned in years? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, on- January 24th of 2003, some big news did come out that was true, and it was about Amber Frey. She was a Fresno massage therapist, and she came forward at a police news conference to make a statement that she was having an affair with Scott Peterson. Amber's best friend, Sean Sibley, had set up this blind date between her and Scott Peterson. Her friend, Sean, had met Scott at a convention in Anaheim. The affair had started on November 20th. Scott told her that he was single. As their relationship continued, Amber had introduced Scott to her 20-month-year-old daughter, and he would cook them dinners, take them out uh, for Christmas tree shopping, all of that cute coupley stuff you do. On December 6th, Amber's friend Sean found out that Scott was married and that he was going to tell Amber. Scott explained to Sean that he had lost his wife, and that it was hard for him to talk about it and wanted the chance to tell Amber himself. When he talks to Amber, basically saying that this will be his first holiday since her passing, that it's hard to talk about, making it sound like she died from some tragic illness. Meanwhile, he has an eight-month pregnant wife 
home alone. And Amber trusts his word and doesn't push the topic any further. And just to be clear, he tells Amber that he had quote unquote lost his wife on December 9th. That's just 14 days before she had actually disappeared. Kind of sketch. Kind of sketch. So that would lead you to believe that he had already decided to kill Lacey. Right. Or is he just being a lying bastard? Also very true. Like, one thing that hurt him the most in this whole entire case was himself. Right. There's no doubt about that. He was definitely easy for people to hate. On December 14th, Amber even took him as her date to a Christmas party. Acting all coupley, there's a picture of them all wrapped up holding each other, having a great time. He has this big smug smile on his face. And meanwhile, there's this other picture taken the same day of Lacey at a party alone, pregnant, sitting there in a cute little Christmas dress. Mm -hmm. When the news of this affair came to light, it was pretty damaging to his case, as well as deteriorated his relationship with Lacey's family and friends. He lost all of that support that he did previously had and people that thought that he was innocent. Before this public statement, Amber had already been working with the police and allowed them to secretly record her phone conversations with Scott in hopes of getting him to confess or if he would let something slip. The entire courtroom couldn't get enough of these recordings. Playing each conversation and the transcripts were publicized. The recordings reveal that after Lacey went missing, Scott was telling her all of these lies that he was traveling to Paris to celebrate for the holidays, but in reality, it was just minutes before going to a New Year's Eve candlelight vigil for Lacey and Modesto. That's so fucked. And then it gets worse. So like even after Amber goes out and makes this like public statement to the police, he still calls her after. And these conversations are still recorded. Wow. And, like, he's talking about how great her character is and, like, how great of a person she is. And it's like, what? Excuse. Excuse me? Like, I don't believe that he was in love with her or killed for her. Um, No. But I do believe that he is a... shitty shady character he's a shitbag he's a shitbag i do believe that he did like to be single i feel like he might have been scared of being tied down or could have possibly resented lacy for the fixed life that he felt like he was stuck in but is it enough to kill her is it enough to kill her question mark not sure skipping ahead to april 13th of 2003 The remains of a male fetus washed ashore on the San Francisco Bay Beach. And the following day, a woman's decomposing torso was discovered near the marina, about a mile away from where the fetus was found. The lead investigators on the case, Detective Bercini and Bueller, said that they knew they had to find and talk to Scott Peterson because it was the same body of water that he just so happened to be fishing in the day his wife disappeared. And that's where the body comes up. The investigators knew exactly where Scott was because they had placed a tracker on the vehicle just in case he was going to try and make a run for it across the border to Mexico. Scott was staying in San Diego where his parents lived and he was familiar with the area. The police started to follow his car the day that the bodies were found. Scott was driving erratically going 80 miles per hour on the freeway. He would slam on his brakes, pull over, flicking them off. One of the detectives made the statement, it got to the point where 
we had a helicopter, lost him. Either he's going to kill someone or one of these agents that are trying to follow him are going to get killed or kill somebody. The police wanted to put it to a stop before anything bad were to happen. They were able to finally pull him over by the exit ramp for the Torrey Pines golf course. Scott later stated he was driving crazy because he thought it was the media that was following him and that he was just trying to go golfing with his family that day. A few days after the bodies were discovered, Scott Peterson was arrested when the remains were identified through DNA testing as Lacey Peterson and her child. Following his arrest, the investigation into Lacey's case had continued, starting with his vehicle. They had to do an inventory search. And here are their findings. There were camping supplies such as hiking boots, a shovel, rope, knives, and a fishing pole. There was fourteen dollars to $15,000 in cash. Hmm. He had his brother's ID of which he stated was to go golfing at the club with his family so that he could get in, four cell phones, and a dozen Viagra pills. There was some other miscellaneous items, like a photo of him and Lacey, and um, some children's books, food, stuff like that. And also at this time, he had dyed his hair blonde. Scott stated that he was mostly staying with friends and family in the area, or just living out of his car, Due to the media shitstorm that had happened, he was unable to go anywhere without a cloud of reporters following him. Due to the condition of Lacey's found remains, the entire trial was based almost entirely on circumstantial evidence, meaning that the evidence has no direct proof, but is instead based on a certain provable fact or facts used to form a credible story of events on a case. So, like, presuming what may or may not have happened that day. Even the most credible eyewitness testimony is only circumstantial because there are so many influences that can have an impact on the human recall. In cases lacking direct evidence, the prosecution must attempt to provide evidence of the circumstances from which the judge and jury can logically deduct or reasonably infer a factual theory of a case that cannot be proven directly. It's up to the prosecutors to show through a set of circumstances that their theory of what took place is the only logical deduction. Conversely, in cases of circumstantial evidence, the job of the defense is to show the same circumstances might be explained by an alternative theory. In order to avoid conviction, all the defense attorney must do is create reasonable doubt. If even one juror is convinced strongly enough that the prosecution's explanation for the circumstances is flawed, the case may be dismissed. Now, one of the hardest parts of the trial for those in the courtroom and the families of Lacey Peterson was the results of the autopsy report and the photographs of Lacey and Connor Peterson. Lacey Peterson's family was not in the court either day uh, because they had shown them two separate days uh, for the fetus and the results for Lacey Peterson. The family did not appear in court the entire week as the testimony led up to the display of the photographs. Now, when these photos came up, it was a very disturbing picture, as you can imagine, from their bodies being in the water for months. Scott Peterson looked down while the photos were displayed. His mother, Jackie, used a small notebook to shield her face from the larger-than-life images. 
His father, Lee, simply looked away. The jurors were visibly upset with what they had to see, looking away, crying, in shock of what had remained of the mother and her child. The conditions of both Lacey and Connor was a major discrepancy in this case, whether the baby was born prior to Lacey's death or after. Prosecutors claimed that the fetus was expelled from Lacey's decaying corpse while she was in the water already. Trying to prove that Scott had killed his eight-month pregnant wife on or around December 24th when he had dumped her weighted body into the bay while the defense attorneys say that the baby was born alive and then murdered later, that someone else had abducted and killed Lacey as she walked the couple's dog around the neighborhood after Scott had left for his fishing trip. Dr. Brian Peterson completed Lacey's autopsy. Lacey's corpse was missing the head, neck, forearms, and part of her left leg, and her innards were exposed, showing a rib cage and other bones speckled with barnacles. Lacey's ribs were fractured, but he couldn't say whether the injuries came before or after her death. The only internal organ that was present was the uterus. He had even stated himself that he was limited by the fact that there was so much of the body that wasn't found. Dr. Brian Peterson said that he had examined the remains for any signs of her extremities that had been physically cut off, but could find nothing conclusive. Based off of what he had found, where her neck, forearms, and her legs had cut off, it was at joints where it was the weakest point. So, like, if you're thinking back to the disar- the was a disembodied feet with disarticulation, dis- it's just mm-hmm. it's just what happens when your body's in the water, especially for fucking months. Your joints are the first place to go because the skin's the thinnest, and all of her internal organs missing are just. fish feeding on her honestly yeah the tides and the currents and the san francisco bay or fish eating away at her flesh Mm -hmm. could have caused the body to tear apart and that's why there were so little remains found of her same thing with the fracturing of her ribs like it just could have been hitting hitting against something something, a rock even the waves the land her body was found on rocks so Mm -hmm. there's no way to tell with the amount of like decomposition that was there when it could have possibly happened or how, what the cause of death was. Right. And also if her body was taken apart with some sort of knife or saw, that would leave marks on the bone, but there was no such marks. Right. You would see very... A cut. It wouldn't be like at the point of a joint. Yeah, you would see a cut. Or it wouldn't have like breakage. Mm -hmm. Now, moving on to the autopsy of Connor Peterson... The remains of the fetus did have signs that the body was decomposing, but it was found in better condition than that of Lacey's remains, which would indicate that it was preserved by Lacey's body. The fetus was found with some clear plastic tape uh, wrapped around its neck uh, one and a half times and then knotted off. There was visibly space between the tape and the neck, and the skin beneath it was not injured. The tape was given to a criminalist and determined that it was just coincidental, that it was not related to the death of the child, that it was just debris from the water that ended up on the body, which would make sense because even Scott said when he was fishing in the area that there was a lot of debris 
Now, based on the measurements, it was believed that Connor could have reached full term. He weighed about uh, two and a half pounds. The crown of the head measurement could not be taken because his head was collapsing. And the crown to heel length was 48 centimeters, like 19 inches. The skin was described as soft and the tissue was soaking in fluid, like bloating. There was no vernix on the body, which is that like waxy white coating on newborn babies. There was a tear near the right shoulder that had exposed uh, like skeletal muscle and the tear extended to the abdominal wall and portions of the small and large intestines protruded from the tear. There was no curved marks or edges around it, so concluding that it was simply just due to the tissue falling apart, being pulled apart due to like tidal action, or possibly being hit by a boat propeller, um, it wasn't like signs of it being due to animal feeding. There was a portion of the umbilical cord present, measuring only about a half a centimeter. The edge of the umbilical cord, it was um, like ragged. So it either fell apart, pulled apart, um, it wasn't was a eaten. clear cut. Yeah. Dr. Brian Peterson testified there was no evidence Lacey had given birth prior to her death. He said he could tell the woman had been pregnant by the size of her uterus, which had expanded to about 10 inches, which normally would be the size of a golf ball. Her uterus had not returned to more normal size as a typical woman after giving birth naturally. Dr. Brian Peterson said that the top of the uterus was open and there were no signs of uh, a C-section. When Dr. Brian Peterson was on the stand, prosecutor Dave Harris asked, that means Miss Peterson was pregnant and the baby had not been delivered when she died. Peterson said the cause of death could not be determined. However, on cross-examination, the doctor kind of broke when he was on the stand and acknowledged that he could not definitively determine whether the fetus had been born alive, and he estimated its age to be nine months. Now, taking a look at some of the questionable evidence that was included in the trial was number one, Scott's boat. Prior to Lacey's disappearance, Scott had recently purchased a fishing boat. The prosecution's theory was that this was bought in premeditation or at least played a role in dumping Lacey's body in the water. On Saturday, December 7th at 4.41 p.m., Scott logged into modb.com and searched for the classifieds for a boat. He had purchased a fishing boat that had included 15 horsepower motor, the 14-foot game fisher was equipped with fishing gear that included two fishing chairs, two rod holders, and a trolling motor, and a fish finder. If his intent was to dump a body, a bigger boat could have been better if you were premeditating it, if you're just arguing that case. And there were cheaper boats that were available that were bigger, and hypothetically, it would be easier to throw something off board and if you're just trying to buy a boat for that purpose why would you get one with all those bells and whistles yeah why would you spend more money for a fishing boat that isn't gonna do the job that you're intending it for another flaw with the theory is with the the fishing boat is it came with a fish finder 
And one thing that a fish finder does is indicate how deep the water is. Scott told the police that he was in the area around Brooks Island because it looked like a decent shallow area to fish in. The police allege that Scott dumped Lacey's body in the area that is as shallow as three feet during low tide. Why would someone dump a body in a shallow area when you have a fish finder on your boat that enables you to gauge how deep the water is? And also, Scott had never taken this boat out prior to December 24th, so that would be a pretty risky move trying to figure out if a you can... A new boat. Yeah, if you can toss a body over into the water in a new fishing boat that you've never been in and not tip. The police doubted that someone would be able to dump a body out of Scott's boat. They theorized that Scott might have tied down the boat with a buoy to stabilize it, Also, Detective Hendy testified in court that he wanted to attempt a reenactment of a weighted body dumping out of the boat, but neither the police nor prosecution had ever tried it. There was an unsuccessful reenactment attempted by Scott's defense, but the judge didn't allow the court to see it. And you can still view the footage of the reenactment, like the failed attempts. Each one, they do... um, They end up in the water, like, trying to put, like, the weighted bodies into the water. And another thing that they did do in the courtroom is they had the jury look at the boat and then actually allowed them to get into it on land. And then they were trying to, like, rock it and, like, check out the durability. But it's, like... It's on land. Yeah. Like, right? Like, I go fishing a decent amount. I've been on a decent amount of boats in my lifetime. Like, you can't tell... You can't tell the durability of a distribution boat. distribution on land. land. No. When it's hooked up on a trailer. Like, that doesn't it's make any sense. the most asinine thing I've ever heard. Right? <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. No. Mm-mm. But also, like, there's no proof of, like, if he fell into the water. What if he did go into the shallow area? What if he did dump her body there because there was debris found on both of them? That's possible. He could have jumped out just because the that little island said no landing doesn't mean that you cannot land there. It doesn't mean that there's someone there patrolling it. Right. And also, it's Christmas Eve. Who's going to be out there? Who's out there? Besides the random people that saw you when you were coming in. And you would probably have a pretty clear scope if anyone's seeing you. And if you just have a body covered in a tarp in your thing, who's going to stop and question you on Christmas Day? Like, no one's out there. Or right. Christmas Eve. Yeah. So, like, I definitely see the argument both ways. But, like, I feel like they definitely just argued it the wrong way. I feel like they are reaching for the wrong evidence. hmm And that's why this is just, like, such a fascinating case because if they would have just reached out to those other outlets and witnesses like could more information have been found right now um in addition to the the boat scott purchased it didn't come with anchors so to save money he had made his own which led to the concrete theory that scott had made multiple anchors to weigh down Lacey's body Scott told the police that he used a painter's bucket to form the anchor and inserted a uh, like a rebar loop at the top so that you could tie rope through it. Scott said that after he had made the anchor, he used the remaining concrete to fill a muddy hole next to his driveway, trying to account for the full 90-pound bag. Even though Scott told the police what he had made the anchor in, 
for some reason, they still theorize that he made it in a pitcher found in the warehouse, of which I don't understand what that whole argument was about. Like, I, I just do not fucking get it. But uh, the anchor didn't fit into this picture because it's not what he fucking made it in. And uh, later, the police, they did find uh, a painter's bucket at Home Depot that matched the anchor that was found on the boat, kind of like he had initially said he did in the first place. There was evidence that there was some dried remnants of concrete along the side of the driveway, but I couldn't find any credible information on how much was found on the side of the driveway to fill this, like, muddy hole. And it was a 90-pound bag of concrete. That's a decent amount of concrete dust just piled on the side of your driveway and only one eight-pound anchor made out of it. So I do feel like it's definitely plausible to make four other anchors out of that At easily. Least, yeah, like it's an 80-pound bag of dust. Exactly. Which equals to what? A lot of pounds <laughs> with water, you know? Right. So I don't understand like how they got stuck on it. It was stated multiple times in the media that Scott had a so-called anchor factory on his way or house. Um, and Detective... Uh, Brochini said that there was distinct rings on the trailer that it was alleged that Scott made five anchors, four to weigh down Lacey's body in the San Francisco Bay and one for his boat. And then the rest was just like put into that muddy hole or whatever. But uh, people have gone back and forth on being able to see distinct rings for multiple buckets. But my thoughts on it is if he's trying to save money on making his own fucking anchors, then he's probably the guy that would only buy one fucking bucket. Yeah. And if you make one anchor, you wait, you let it dry, you make your next one. Each time you probably scoop up the concrete dust that's on your trailer, throw it into the next mix, or you just keep putting the bucket in the same spot that you put it in the first time. So you would only see one ring. Right. Like, so fighting about, like, being able to see multiple rings on this trailer, like, I feel like it's it, it's wasted time right. and a wasted argument. Like, yeah. I feel like they got so stuck in that thought and that theory. I, I don't think the number of rings has jack shit to do with whether he's guilty or not. Mm-mm. I do feel like maybe it's unlikely that an entire bag of concrete only made one eight-pound anchor and then dusting on the side of a driveway. Yes. And that's my opinion. Mm-hmm. I do understand the theory to an extent on how they could come to the conclusion that her body was weighed down with anchors due to her limbs never being found and breaking off at the weakest point, so mm-hmm. meaning that they were being weighed down. But in the case, there was no scientific evidence in the court that would uh, that those weights would be enough to submerge her body. Mm-hmm. But even if it was fully submerged or not, like it would still help to hold it down or break those limbs. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, cause that weak point and for it to break off sooner. Some people theorize that her body being, like, submerged is even more unlikely if she was still wrapped in the tarp. But I don't believe that he would have left the tarp around her. So with the tarp, there was a, a blue tarp that was collected as evidence during the search and warrant executed on December 27th. And um, they found it in the shed of their home. I saw mixed information on if it was contaminated with home fertilizer or gas from like a leaky lawn appliance. The cadaver dog that they had brought in had difficulty with the shed where the tarp was found. 
But the cadaver dog itself was in question due to its failing its initial qualification test to be a cadaver dog. Uh, Sounds like exactly the dog you should have investigating this case. <laughs> such a high-profile case. So the test results for the tarp are as such. Having mildew smell, observed sawdust, dirt, pollen, part of flowers, greenish stains. So like anyone's Regular typical tarp. tarp. Um, they did find two long blonde hairs, some shorter hairs, but it was no match for Lacey. Uh, they were possibly animal hairs or probably animal hairs. Mm-hmm. There were two stains, but they tested negative for blood. They were like a brownish stain. So who the fuck knows? Because it's just a tarp. You it's just throw it over shit, you know? There was no tissue or other trace of evidence, but people theorize that if this tarp was covered in gasoline, that it would have wiped away like any evidence. Mm. Um, or it could have deteriorated evidence that was on the tarp previously. But left everything else. Exactly. Like, I don't understand how that all theorizes. I didn't go down that loophole too far. Right. Now, moving on to the next common misconception on this case is that Lacey's body was found wearing the pants that she had worn the night before she had disappeared. Evidence that would point towards Scott being guilty. The truth, however, is that Lacey's body was not found in the pants that she had worn the previous day. So if you remember back on December 23rd, Scott and Lacey, they had went to the salon where Lacey's sister had worked. And Amy recalled that she was wearing a thin black shirt with cream-colored flowers, cream-colored scarf, black jacket, and then cream-colored stretch pants, like khaki pants. But on December 26th, when they went to go investigate the home, there is even a search warrant photo that shows a thin black shirt with cream-colored flowers in the hamper. And Amy Racha was actually brought to Scott and Lacey's home in Modesto on, on February 18th when they did a secondary search warrant on the house. The police had asked Amy to select the clothing that Lacey was wearing on the evening of December 23rd, when the last time that she had seen him. And Amy looked in the closet and had saw the pants that she was wearing that day. So the pants that were found with her remains were not, in fact, the ones from December 23rd. So on April 14th, when Lacey's body was recovered, she was wearing khaki capri pants, but they were separate than what she was wearing on December 23rd, which is what initially gave everyone the implementation that Scott was the one that had killed her the night before she had gone missing. And the police at this point were the only ones that had known that she was specifically wearing these pants. And a big condemning factor that was in the trial but was misinformation on June 1st of 2004. In his opening statement, prosecutor Rick DeStasso insinuates that Lacey was found in the pants that she was wearing the night before she had disappeared, which is false information. But what contradicts that whole fact is the witnesses that saw her walking in the morning and Scott's statement of last time seeing Lacey is she was wearing black leggings and a white shirt. One of the defense strategies to present reasonable doubt was posing the theory that Lacey was abducted and killed by a satanic cult. They tried to leverage those 
that had memories of the satanic panic, which hasn't been relevant in the area for 15 years, claiming that the baby was born before both of their untimely ends, and that the tape found on the fetus was indication of some sort of torture. But there was no evidence of mutilation or torture. If they did this for some sort of ritualistic purposes, the fetus wouldn't have been found in the condition that it was. There would be more evident trauma to both of their remains. And that's all I'm going to say on the whole entire satanic cult theory. It was discredited by everybody in the courtroom. The Racha family was completely insulted by like mm-hmm. how outlandish this was. Right. Um, they felt like it was pretty much like a slap to the face. Right. Now, one of the most compelling theories for those that believe Scott Peterson is innocent is related to a burglary at the Medina's residence that lived almost directly across the street from the Petersons that occurred the day that Lacey had disappeared. When Lacey had caught the thieves in the act, she went to confront them and got into a verbal altercation. One of the witnesses' accounts that saw Lacey that day was a female hospital employee described two men yelling at a pregnant woman who was walking a dog. This hospital employee only received a return phone call and was never called to the courtroom for the trial or any information involving it. Another tip from a retired reserve officer described a pregnant woman being shoved back into a van less than half a mile from Scott and Lacey's house. He made repeated attempts to contact the Modesto Police Department and was never called back. Now, the so-called thieves that were involved in this burglary was Stephen Todd and Donald Pierce. They were found in possession of the Medina safe at the property where they both lived. The Modesto police department could have followed a very obvious connection from the burglary, the altercation, and her disappearance. The residence of Stephen Todd and Donald Pierce was in the airport district, approximately two blocks from the Gallo Winery. After Lacey's disappearance on December 24th, a cadaver dog followed the lead from Lacey Peterson's house on Covina to the Gallo Winery property on Santa Rosa Avenue in the late night, early morning hours of December 26th. So not too long after her disappearance, the handler had stopped the search at the dead end inside the Gallo property, even though she admits that more could have been done there. They just thought that it was a dead end. On the day that Stephen Todd and Donald Pierce were arrested, the Modesto Police Department could have sent the dog handler um, and the cadaver dog back to the gallo and allowed the dog to pursue that lead further throughout the airport neighborhood, but they didn't. And yet another concerning tip came from Lieutenant Aponte, who worked in California prison. He called the Modesto police to report a monitored phone conversation that one of their inmates had with their brother, who lived in Modesto. The brother told the inmate that Lacey had confronted the burglars who were robbing the house directly across the street from where she had lived. That house was, in fact, robbed the day Lacey went missing. This conversation was recorded by the prison. Not only did the Modesto Police Department never follow up on that tip, the tape has now been lost. Of course. So there's no record of it. And then after the fact, the problem is the police caught the burglars 
and then somehow determined the burglary took place two days after Lacey had disappeared. Um, so all of a sudden, there's not a, a sure date on when that had happened. One of the reporters who appeared on uh, one of the um, documentaries for Lacey Peterson, it disputes that because they said if it was on the 26th, like two days after her disappearance, there was media covered all in the area. They would have seen it happen or like run into the burglar. So very questionable indeed. Like were the police just too in depth on the Scott Peterson case? Was he already found pretty much guilty at this point? Do they feel like they already had their man for it? And then just change the date of the burglary so that they don't have any problems and they can just close the case because there's a lot of media attention. On November 12th, 2004, a jury found Scott Peterson guilty of first-degree murder in the death of his wife, Lacey, and second-degree murder in the death of their unborn child, Connor. Three members of the jury spoke to reporters about what led them to the conviction of Peterson, stating it was hard to narrow it down to one specific issue. There were so many, and the jury foreman, Steve Cardozzi, had stated... Collaboratively, when you add it all up, it doesn't appear to be any other possibility. Basically stating that he's the only one that could have done it. The jurors pointed out to those deciding factors, which was, number one, the bodies of Lacey and their unborn child had washed up close to where Scott said he had been fishing the day that she was reported missing. Number two was that Scott was proven to be a a liar Um, with the multiple affairs and specifically with the Amber Frey affair that was made very public. And number three is all behavioral based. So Scott showed no remorse for the loss of Lacey and their unborn child, including continuing his romantic encounters with Amber Frey, even in the days following Lacey's disappearance. While the defense did manage to offer alternative explanations for much of the circumstantial evidence that the prosecutions presented during the trial, there was little that he could do to negate the effect Scott's lack of emotions had on the jury. Peterson was sentenced to death by lethal injection in 2005. And most recently, on August 24th of 2020, the death penalty for Scott Peterson was overturned, though his conviction was upheld. The court upheld Mr. Peterson's conviction, but it said that the trial judge had made mistakes and hindered his right to an imperial jury when sentencing. The court had stated, We reject Peterson's claim that he had received an unfair trial as to guilt and thus affirm his convictions for murder. But before the trial began, the trial court made a series of unclear and significant errors in jury selection. The court said prosecutors could, again, seek the death penalty for Mr. Peterson at a new hearing. So basically, when all of these jurors were selected, they basically already had that bias. Preconceived notion. Mm -hmm. And prospective jurors whose views on capital punishment would impair their ability to follow the law could be dismissed as unqualified, uh, the court said, but jurors could not be dismissed simply for having expressed opposition to the death penalty. 
The defense lawyer who represented Scott Peterson at trial welcomed this decision, stating, obviously, if you death qualify jurors in the case like this, it's going to give you a jury with a pro-prosecution. And Scott Peterson, 47 now, has maintained his innocence and still states he has nothing to do with his wife and unborn child's deaths. Uh, There was more that came out of this whole trial. Um, After the death of Lacey and Connor Peterson, it did lead to the passage of Unborn Victims and Violence Act, which was also known as the Lacey and Connors Law. On April 1st, 2004, Sharon Racha, Lacey's mother, and her husband, when President George W. Bush signed the bill into law. The act provides that under federal law, any person who causes death or injury to an unborn child while in the commission of a crime upon a pregnant woman will be charged with a separate offense. Some additional sources on this case, if you're interested in getting completely lost in the sauce like me, uh, Lacey's mother did also write a book uh, called For Lacey, A Mother's Story of Love, Lost, and Justice. It was a biography and a memoir about Lacey's life and death. There's also two documentaries available on Hulu. Uh, A&E made a six-part series, The Murder of Lacey Peterson. And there is a two-hour ID channel documentary called Scott Peterson, An American Murder Mystery. Um, The six-part series, it starts off like you really hate Scott Peterson, but at the end it makes it very questionable. And it has, like, a lot of insights from different reporters that were there from the beginning to the end, the attorneys. Like, it's a a lot of the people that were involved in the case, which I found interesting. And a lot of the interviews that Scott Peterson had, they are still available on YouTube. Like the Diane Sawyer Good Morning America interview, that's available. But the Diane Sawyer one, it's very cringeworthy. Because she straight up asked him, so you're going to tell everyone that your wife knew about your affair and didn't care? Eight months pregnant? She didn't mind? Right. She was okay with it? He's like, you don't know our relationship. And it's like, um, um sir, <laughs> convince all of America. <laughs> but I've been up, down, back, forth with this case. Growing up seeing this as a kid on the news, like you think, oh yeah, no brainer, the husband did it, duh. And the media does paint the perfect picture, but is it all really the truth? Yes, he's a cheating bastard, seemingly emotionless to the public eye, but does that mean that he killed his wife and unborn child? I don't really believe all the coincidences uh, with the case. Like, he's going fishing in the water an hour and a half away from their home, just so happens to be the same waters where his wife and unborn child are found. And that he tells people that he had lost his wife before she's even missing. He buys a boat, makes anchors, calls and leaves a message stating what time it was to his wife. Like, I found that very cringeworthy. And, like, it was, I don't know how to say this in a nice way, but it was, like, a very suck-up-ish, lovey-dovey voicemail. Right. Like, granted, there's those people. That's fine. It's okay to be lovey-dovey. That's understandable. But, like, if you're leaving a voicemail for somebody, would you necessarily leave a time stamp and where you're leaving from? I mean, it definitely establishes an alibi Mm -hmm. for sure. But at the same time, it was Christmas Eve 
and he was an hour and a half away, so he could just be saying, hey, it's 2.15, it'll take me about an hour and a half. You know, it's there's so much where you can say, uh, well, okay, yeah, or "Mm, maybe not, because he's not the first man in history to cheat on his wife and say, like, oh, well, my wife is dead, you know? Yeah, like people say crazy shit i would just say people in general say crazy shit it's not just men women can cheat too right it's a thing i mean that could be a completely normal voicemail but for some reason when i heard it it just struck me wrong that it was a little bit too pre-planned for my taste it's also odd what makes it more odd to me than having a timestamp in the voicemail is that he called so many people while driving like how he called his friend mm-hmm. and then called Lacey two more times? Yeah. Why? If you left her a voicemail on the home phone or left her a voicemail on her cell phone, okay, why did you call her a third time? I, I don't know. I just think it's weird that he called so many times, mm-hmm. like trying to establish an alibi. That he was trying to reach her mm-hmm. and that he didn't know that she was gone. Right. And another big question of this, and we're we're about to just go through a tornado of, like, all of my thoughts on this case. So, did he have time to smother his wife, move her in broad daylight, and dump her without being detected on a fishing boat? And also, there's the fact about, what about the dog? So, if he's the one that did this, why was the dog out? I mean, there's the possibility of hiding the body under the umbrellas that he had in the truck... Um, put a tarp over so people couldn't see her, take it to the storage unit and put it in the boat when it's covered with the tarp and maybe he was in a rush and the dog gets out from the backyard in a hurry. So like when he's trying to get out of there after putting her in, maybe he had her in the backyard. Uh, I think it's entirely possible that he just put the dog in the backyard with a leash on just to further establish an alibi that, oh, she told her mom last night she was going to walk the dog. Let me make it seem like the dog came back. Yeah. And she didn't. And then also the whole thing about the uh, when he's passing the island with the no landing sign, that doesn't mean that he can't pull up. Or if he said that he was getting wet, that maybe he did fall in. Maybe the boat did tip yeah, over. Maybe gonna, he uh, did land and then dump her. I was going to say something about that, but I didn't want to interrupt you when you were talking. Like, why the fuck was he wet? Mm-hmm. Like, what? You're in a boat. Mm-hmm. It's not raining. Why are you wet? And also, he did describe that there was a lot of garbage in the area, which might even explain why it took so long for the bodies to turn up. And also, in the conditions that they did, whether she had anchors on her or not, she could have gotten caught in, like, garbage. Also, if he dumps her there, it's almost the perfect place to dump it because it's full of fucking garbage. Yeah. Who's going to question another piece of Or if of someone's trying to scan through like garbage. it. Yeah. If someone's trying to, like, when they're skimming the waters, like, you're just going to see piles of trash and, like, I don't want to sound like doom and despair, but also might be common dumping grounds. And also, one of my other thoughts, going just everywhere here, why would he send emails from his work before going on a fishing trip? Maybe it's so that he could get a timestamp saying that he was in the office. Why would he leave Martha Stewart on? I don't know. Maybe he didn't think to change the channel when he decided to smother his wife, left it on while he was cleaning. I mean, he did already prep a mop and bring it into the house, brought in a cleaning bucket. 
I mean, Martha Stewart could have been on just to establish another alibi and been like, okay, well, if I tell them what is on during a certain program, then what that's we going yeah, to establish an alibi. And I feel like also another thing that I thought was weird that she just randomly logged on. For like five minutes. For five minutes to look at a random ass scarf and a random ass umbrella. I mean, I don't find that part so weird. No, it's it's fucking weird. It's super weird. Because when you go online shopping, you peruse for more than five minutes. And you look at more than just two things. Mm-hmm. And those are very oddly specific things to yeah. be looking at. Like, I could see if maybe it was like... Uh, if she was online shopping for something for Connor's room, it makes it seem like someone just jumped on and typed in like red scarf or like sunflower umbrella, like something like super quick to me that would make it seem like if she were on the computer shopping mm. and then log off, you know? Mm-hmm. I just think it's weird that she would have jumped on the computer for five minutes, searched two completely random things, and then popped off. I just, I don't know. I, th- I think it's weird. And, like, one of the other things, like, I feel like they could have used, if these witnesses did truly see Lacey, and if the timestamp puts a neighbor bringing the dog back at 1017, which was all pretty much circumstantial, the way that she figured out that she had put the dog in the yard, like, the gated yard, um, at 1017 is she found a receipt days later in her jeans that said a timestamp of like 1034 when she went to a Christmas store. And then she had like back planned her day from there to figure out 1015. So that's pretty much like a guesstimate timestamp that everyone is building their whole entire theories off of. But that's still within the time frame of Lacey going on her walk, these witnesses seeing her, being back before Scott leaves to drive eight minutes to work because he wasn't sure exactly what time he left. Mm-hmm. He logs in and checks his emails at work at 10.30 a.m. Mm-hmm. And it only takes him eight minutes to get there. So even if she did go on that dog walk in the morning, came back, she would be able to come back. It would still be a quick turnaround time. But how long does it take to smother somebody? I mean, it would. It maybe it was just a heat of the moment. That's what I mean. I think does it was something, a, and then that's why if that it could was explain Scott why the Peterson, dog was out. I feel like it was a crime of passion. He did not pre-plan for it. It was not premeditated, but it did simply just happen. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. It's all circumstantial, guys. It's also very weird too. Why did he go to work on Christmas Eve? Because no one would be there. Why? If he if he has her body, well, but what I'm saying, I understand why mm-hmm. in that perspective. But why, as a normal human, why would you be going to work on? Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. Right, it's just weird to me. It further makes it seem like he was doing something to try to establish an alibi. Mm-hmm. Because oh well, timestamp, 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 exactly. But also, where my brain did go at some point during all of this research. You can't forget the possibility that we don't know when she had actually died. So what if she comes back from her walk? I'm just going to pose this as a question. She comes back from her walk. She's wearing the black leggings, the white blouse. She brings the dog in, puts it in the backyard. And then Scott says that he's going fishing for the day. It's Christmas evening. Why wouldn't you want to spend time with your husband? Go out on that brand new boat with him. Change into some cute little khaki pants for the day. And go out for a nice little fishing float, whatever. And what if something happens when they're on the water? What if she falls in 
what if she drowns? There's different things that could happen. Right. Or what if something happens while he stops at work? I don't know. But, like, we don't know the time that she had died. So there's just that great big possibility. What if she willingly went with him? Even though they were in question, there the cadaver dogs did go to the end of the landing. So whether it was picking up a wrong scent from Scott, whether he did have Lacey's body or whether Lacey willingly walked on that boat with him, like, I feel like it's too much coincidence for her to be placed there where he just went fishing. I don't know. There's so many endless possibilities that could have happened. There is. And there's the believable theory with the burglary. So if they would have followed those leads, would they have found evidence in that van? Would they have found someone else guilty for the crimes? Would they found solid proof of it? Here's my thing, though, too, about this burglary thing, Mm -hmm. is that... So she's walking her dog. Yeah. And she sees a home break in. Mm-hmm. She's eight months pregnant. You're going to confront these guys? Yeah. In my head, I would run back home because she lives But also, almost why is she in different corner. pants then, too? Did she go inside, put the dog in the backyard or something, and then change? And then confront them? Or did they find her later? Where would they have found her? And then... They say that they found her when she was on the walk, but in the walk she was wearing the black pants. That's why I feel like my scenario, if you're going to go spend the day with your husband, you're running errands, you're going fishing, you're doing whatever, I'm going to change into different clothes besides, like, maybe leggings. Right. You know what I mean? That might be, like, a pants occasion. You don't know what's going to happen that day. But that was just uh, my woman brain ticking. Yeah. On the change of clothes. Like, how would she go walking in that outfit and multiple people see her and then end up in a different outfit besides like going in well changing and then confronting them later or they happen to run into her also the whole fucking first theory about him killing her shoving her in the fucking umbrella maybe he changed her clothes to try to make it seem like something happened Who's to say? That it happened while he was at work. That's like mastermind shit there at some point, though. Right. See, and that's what also makes me double think everything. Because I'm like, is this dude really that fucking smart? Mm -hmm. Like, anyone is smart enough to call and try to establish alibis or go someplace to establish alibis. But are you really thinking that clearly in the moment that you think, okay, well, let me change your clothes because then it'll seem like this. And Mm -hmm. then let me go here. And uh, I've been making all these anchors. So then I'll wrap her up in this tarp and then put her in it. Like, are you really, that is super hella premeditated. Yeah. Has, Has this dude really been thinking about that all this time? Or was it a crime of passion? I don't know. I don't believe the whole uh, people uh, kidnapping her and shoving her mm-hmm. in a van. I think that's very... I mean, it's intriguing that uh, this that whatever dude like tried multiple times to try to contact the police department saying, I saw a pregnant woman getting shoved into a van. Mm-hmm. What if Scott hired Hitman? You that know? is a possibility. It, you... Find he, some sketchy character. The fucking character. dude had 15000 fucking dollars in cash. Mm-hmm. Who's to say that he didn't pay a fucking hitman or two to find her on her walk and then just for him to feel more comfort goes and establishes an alibi an hour and a half away so that way he couldn't possibly be linked to her murder but then ends up being linked anyway. 
And also, I don't find it believable. Um, if you are just burglarizing a house, they got caught anyways. They are common thieves, so it's not something they haven't faced before. Why, at this point, would they choose to kill someone? Decide to kill her, yeah. And then, why would they drive an hour and a half away to dump her in this body of water? Some people say that it was, like, a frame job, but, like, I don't buy into that. Mm. Like, I'm sorry. Who would have framed him? Uh, They say that the burglars did. There's a couple different theories How would the burglars know that that's where he would have gone fishing to frame him? Well, they think it's because... The news after the fact that was coming out about the case, and then they dumped her, and that's why she was in a different pair of pants. If you're petty burglars and kill someone, you're dumping that body right away. You're not holding on to it for two days. Yeah. Sorry. But, uh, yeah, so this has been the state of my brain, and still is as of this moment. I do, to a degree, agree with the decision to lift the death penalty due to the fact of how many problems they had with the jury throughout the trial process and that they did already have a preconceived notion of what the outcome was going to be before hearing any of the evidence that was presented at trial. And even their final jury openly spoke to the press um, and were convinced that he was guilty and deserved the death penalty based off of little to zero actual hard evidence. If the media didn't spread like wildfire, would there have been a different outcome? I mean, the whole case and trial, it might not have. The right person could already be serving exactly what they should be. But you know where you guys can hit us up with your hot takes on this case? You can send us an email at thecreepyburrito at gmail.com. Hit us up on Facebook, Insta, and Twitter. And do not, I repeat, do not forget to write us a sweet-ass review on iTunes, Facebook, or rate us on your streaming apps. Tell your friends. Hell yeah, be one of the OGs that love us before we... (laughs) Before we make it big. Before we make it big. (laughs) Until we meet again, next week, come back. Get lost in the sauce with us. Bye-bye. Uh, uh, bye 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 goodbye recipe was found on the christmas count or on the christmas counter <laughs> it's not your normal counter it's a holiday christmas day. counter <laughs>